Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. Karen is studying for their PhD. And today on Feminist Coffee Hour, we have a very special guest. Supriya Vani is a peace activist, author, and human rights advocate. Her latest book is Jacinda Ardern, Leading with Empathy. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I had a chance to read your book and I really enjoyed it. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write it and why you chose to write this biography of the Prime Minister of New Zealand? Yeah, sure. When I was working on my previous book, Battling Injustice, 16 Women Nobel Laureates, I was interviewing all the women Nobel Laureates you know, for it because there is so much about their stories which the world have no idea. I mean, the world is not, not even aware, you know, about the odds they face. So when I interviewed almost every woman Nobel laureate present in this world right now, and I also covered the ones who are no more alive, like, you know, Mother Teresa and all, just to pay a tribute to them. So an idea came into my mind. Okay, now I know about every Nobel Peace Prize winner. How about I know about women leaders and understand about women politicians? Because that's the place where you can really make your own conclusions that how a woman politician is different from a male politician generally. So I went to Iceland to interview the Prime Minister of Iceland. Actually, uh, this was like a book on women presidents and prime ministers. And I was interviewing women presidents and prime ministers. But then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, I just could not complete my remaining interviews with the other world leaders. So I just had two or three world leaders interview. And I cannot write a whole book about just the stories of two or three world leaders. So we kind of thought maybe Jacinda Ardern because she's so compassionate. And I wish so the idea came from there because of the pandemic, the remaining interviews could not happen. And then we had no other choice. So it's an accidental book, to be very honest with you. It's an absolute accidental book. This was not the book. The book was Roaring Feminism, Women Presidents and Prime Ministers. And that's what I was working on. I was writing to presidents of like women presidents and prime ministers. And some of them took my questions and then they all got busy because, you know, they got to save lives and not to give interviews during during the pandemic. And Jacinda, I, I could interview before the pandemic. So that was just a stroke of luck. Wow. Well, it's a happy accident because I think this is a really good book and it's it's really interesting. It I, I found it very educational and I actually, I did not expect to have so much explanation and background about politics in New Zealand, but it was really yeah. helpful. And I just want to say it's very approachable, even if you don't know anything about New Zealand or anything about how the political system works. Like all I knew is that they had a parliament. I didn't really know a lot about it, but I really appreciate the background. So I would encourage anybody to read this book, even if they don't know a lot about the politics or history of New Zealand, because you've included all of that background information, which I found extremely helpful to understanding the rest of the book. Um, but can you just say a little bit about why you feel like Jacinda Ardern's story is relevant outside of New Zealand to, I guess, it seems like you're writing for a global audience or like, who's exactly, your audience? And what, exactly. Why is it relevant? This yeah. book is actually for the global audience. And that's the reason so much of background was actually mentioned to the people who are not from New Zealand can actually relate to it, can actually understand. And why this industry is, is important. It, it's just like giving a message that you can be compassionate and you can be an empath and yet you can be a leader. So I think having emotions or, or being an emotional person 
or or having a warmth in your heart is actually not a bad thing and you can really try to use that in a good way and lead a country and you know that how women are treated in certain parts of the world in certain parts of the world women are not treating well they cannot even go alone outside without a male guardian to be very honest with you in certain parts of the world but this this is a message that you can be a woman and you can be a tough politician yet you can also take care of your baby and you can have a normal life it's just about creating a balance and giving a hope to the younger generation yeah great that was actually kind of be my next question like do you think that there's something to learn from Jacinda about women's roles and and leadership in politics like on a on a global scale do you think like that people should kind of look to that for inspiration or think about how they can modify it for where they live. Yeah, do you think it kind of is generalizable out, outside of New Zealand? Yeah, but you know, I feel that there is a potential in every portion on the, you know, in this planet. And we are all unique personalities and we are all gifted with with like different kind of skills. So no one is superior or like no one is inferior. Everyone is equal. We just need to tap into that mental frequency of being a good portion and then the providence would actually help you. So I think it's just about being your own self and that's it. And just conveying the message that, you know, we are all one and feminism does not mean, you know, hating men. <laughs> it's just about just we are all asking equality and that's it. You know, you have your own say and we have your own say and we have our own say. And, you know, there are so many other women politicians like Angela Merkel, for sure. I mean, you know, and now Kamala Harris in U.S. So I think it's just now, now we are talking, you know, with the change of political dynamics. Sure. And, um, you know, just the subtitle of your book, Leading with Empathy, I think that was really important to, to point out that that's what makes Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern unique is the, the empathy that she brings to her leadership. And something that I've been really concerned about is kind of the rise of fascism and strongman leaders like in the United States and around the world. Like, you know, we had Trump and then there's, you know, Bolsonaro and Duterte and Modi and like in Europe and there's this rise of, of right-wing fascism that is very concerning and it takes a different kind of shape and flavor depending upon what country you go into but it's something I think a lot of people are, are concerned about all, all over the world and so do you feel like empathy is something that can fight fascism? Empathy is the only thing which a leader needs to actually fulfill the duty of becoming a politician. Without empathy, you cannot, I mean, you can actually run a country, but what impact are you going to leave for the future generation? You'll never be remembered. I mean, for example, there are leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and, you know, who never became the president, but yet... His like tomb is, is not there in, in Atlanta, but somewhere in our hearts because his values are like in us. So he lives in us. And, and that's what I expect from certain world leaders because actually being a politician means service to the society, service to the people. So this is actually like people are above a politician, your people. They are your people. 
And the most annoying thing is that the politicians think now they have power, so they're superior. But in reality, they're not because they are there because people elected them so that that politician can actually serve them, help them, nurture them. And that's why leading with empathy is very important because when you lead with empathy, you won't see the person, because, uh, you know, in the context of the color of the skin. You know, you will not bother to know about the religion of that person about the faith of that person or his sexual orientation or anything for that you know for you that person is a human being and that's it because all these kind of segregations comes when you're not speaking from the space of empathy and love and love is the most beautiful language so I think that's the point and that's why I think leading with empathy means that you know love all hate none Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. I appreciate what you're saying, kind of drawing it back into politics, because I think a lot of people might think like, oh, you know, I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. Other people are nice people and good people, too. Like, that's not political, but it absolutely is. You know, like you said it yourself, like leading with empathy is respecting the power that the people have given to you. And and politics is anything about the way that people use power, who gets power, who gets to use it and how. So I guess you're saying that an empathetic leader is a person who respects the people who gave them that power as opposed Mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't and and uses it for their own ends. Yeah. So something that reading this book really drew home for me is something that I've always suspected. Like whenever I read about history, I'm always surprised, but and also comforted. If I read a book that was written a long time ago, if I read something that happened in another part of the world, I just always kind of, it's driven home for me that people are people all over the world and the same cares and the same concerns and the same dramas continue to play out around the world and, and throughout history is that people are people. And I think what this book kind of reinforced is that politics are politics all over the world. I've been involved in in local politics for a long time on on Long Island and and in New York City. And while there are some differences, just reading about the way that local parliament elections work in New Zealand versus how a city council or a county legislature election works in New York, it's not as different as you might expect being on on the other side of the world. Would you agree with that, that, you know, politics is politics or am I leaving out some differences? I think politics is politics, but there is a difference because I think population matters. I mean, the size of the population matters and the size of the country also matters. um, I mean, to some extent, because, you know, for example, India, I mean, there are about more than one billion people, one billion people. So that is very different from 5 million people in New Zealand. You know, that is actually 5 million is not even the population of New Delhi or even New York for that matter. So I think we need, you know, for like countries like Iceland, New Zealand, they're actually easier to manage. And I'm being very honest. It's actually easier to manage. I mean, mainly because of the population factor and also because of the cultural factor, because of the cultural factor, I would say. And here in America, I mean, dealing in New York City is very different from dealing with the people in Iceland and all. So I think all these things matter. But yeah, politics is politics for sure, for sure, anywhere, because people are so power hungry. And I would say Jacinda is a saint, you know, when it comes to the world of politics. She's a saintly politician and I'm not overdoing it. I'm saying it because if you actually compare her with the other leaders, it's just, I would say that she's a saint in that way. I was thinking about that, about the the size of New Zealand 
as compared to other places, you know, that's maybe the size of Brooklyn and Queens together is all of New Zealand. I was thinking like Nassau and Suffolk, but it's a little bit more than that. So and that's so different from the rest of the world. That is mm-hmm. so far away from the rest of the world. Because if you see the geographical location, it took a lot of time for actually COVID to actually reach there because they had an advantage and there was more tourism in New York than in New Zealand. So obviously that's why New York was like worst hit. So there are all factors about it. You know, the book kind of reminded me of, of local politics at the city level or at the Nassau County level, because mm-hmm. that, that might be more similar to kind of national politics in New Zealand. I would say national politics in the United States is different, but I, I also believe that kind of all politics is is local and, you know, really has to start at a, at a community level. Is it okay if I ask you about an editorial decision that you made in the book? You discussed a lot of the crises that Prime Minister Ardern had to deal with in her first few years of office. And one of them was the the terrorist attack, the Christchurch shooting. And at the time in the media, the New Zealand media chose not to use the shooter's name. And they had done such a good job that I didn't even know. But you used it in the book. Is there a reason why? Or did you think about that? I was just curious about that decision. Oh, well, uh, it was a decision made by my co-author. So it was not my decision. Okay. Did you discuss it? I'm just just curious, like, you know why he chose that or... I would say, and I'm speaking on his behalf, was was actually to give the entire information because this is a book and, you know, it's just about being facts, being facts. So this is a factual book. So obviously so that's the reason the name was mentioned because it's just a factual detail. And if you actually go all about the Christchurch episode and everything, obviously the name is going to pop up. But it was not not the media's decision not to name him. It was just Nardun's decision not to name him, that we will not give him anything, not even his name. And I completely, completely concur with that. Because that person is not even a human being who doesn't even blink an eye before, you know, just going out and shooting people randomly. No, that is that is not acceptable. And this is not what we are taught. So I think, yeah. But from the book perspective, it's just about giving a factual detail. That's it. It wasn't a random attack. He was, he was targeting Muslims, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the other thing I think thought was interesting is that I didn't know this when I was reading it, but that, you know, COVID shaped how you wrote the book and why you wrote it the way that you did and also shaped the prime minister's legacy. And you talked about the paper and I went, I looked it up, gender in the time of COVID-19, evaluating national leadership and COVID fatalities, which showed that countries that were led by women did better during the COVID-19 pandemic than those by men. Would you care to say more about that? Yes, yes, yes. Because as I mentioned earlier that I was I was writing to all the women presidents and prime ministers during this time, because my book was about women presidents, prime minister, not just in Darden particularly. And so I was keeping a track of all this because I thought that I'm going to need everything, you know, all the data. So I was headstrong and I, and I saw, my God, the president of Taiwan. Oh, my God. And I'm a bit disappointed in the media for not giving her due, because if you actually do your own research, the president of Taiwan did a fantastic, fantastic job to actually curb uh, COVID-19. 
And so, uh, you know, Angela Merkel, the Prime Minister of Iceland, and there was a survey about it. And there were so many articles about it. Literally, I would say presently, they are not much, but they are hardly eight to 10 countries which are led by women. And there are small countries like Georgia and Slovakia and Croatia had a woman president, Madame Kolanda, but now she's no more in the office. But there was a lot of even memes about it that, hey, you know, see women are doing better. Women present prime ministers are doing better. And yeah, this is the fact. This is this is not just that we wanted to just, you know, make the women politicians look good on paper or something. No. This is a fact with evidence that the countries with women uh, leaders did better job at curbing COVID. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Something I wanted to ask you about, and I think it was only mentioned slightly in the book, but I think it's really interesting. Like this, this happened a few years ago in, in 2018. And just like from a U.S. perspective, I thought it was interesting because there was a lot of talk right before the pandemic. There was kind of a, there was a few articles written about it, about wealthy people creating these bunkers to go to, like if something bad happens, they call like SHTF, when the shit hits the fan, like I'm going to escape to the countryside. And I think Vice wrote about it and the New York Times wrote about it, about kind of how ridiculous it is, because how are you going to leave? Like, is your limo driver going to drive you if there's some kind of nuclear bomb? Are you going to take the limo driver's family and their in-laws and all their kids? Like, who's coming with you to this bunker? Like, what what are you doing? And mm-hmm. I had heard that some wealthy people in the United States and in other countries had been buying land in New Zealand. And I, I had seen that New Zealand had kind of put limits on that. And that kind of, that happened in 2018. So it seems like that probably prevented a lot of people from being able to escape the pandemic in their own country and go to New Zealand. Did you find out anything about that as you wrote the book or? No, I just heard about it, yeah. but I don't have enough knowledge about this, that right. they were bombing lands in New Zealand or in other countries, because I mean, that is way top about it. Okay, so they're already planning to do something. Uh, it's, it's just negative thinking, you know, they just want to run away and not face the circumstances or, or like help people around them. And so it's just being a shirker, right? It's just not being there for your own people and trying to find an um, escape it's not the job of strong people yeah I I saw a tweet and it said something like how much money did you put into your luxury bunker versus how much money have you given to your local food bank so um exactly (laughs) exactly I mean this is the trend these days I mean it's so hard to talk about compassion it's so hard to talk about compassion with you know with the people especially in New York City where time is money Mm-hmm. But literally, with my, I'm talking with my own experience, like even people, I know I'm saying it, it's just not re- relevant to the book, but time is money for like New York, for majority of the New Yorkers. I'm not saying everyone, but especially near the Times Square area where like every second counts, you know, they're all about, okay, so what they can get from this interview or or, or like what they can get from this appointment or or like what they can get from their lunch with you. And you know? so all they, they're all thinking in a very different tangent. And I'm from a very different tangent because I'm speaking from the space of of, you know, knowing each other or uh, understanding. So I think compassion plays a wider role. Oh, definitely. And, and compassion does take time. I mean, that's that's why I do this this podcast the way that I do it. I like to have like a an in-depth conversation with a person because I think you can learn way more 
about that than something that's really quick. Whenever an American talks about peace and love, and I and I always tell that person, this is a country of Jane Addams. Jane Addams was the first American woman to get Nobel Peace Prize. So she started a Hull House in Chicago to feed the needy people. And Barack Obama openly really take her as a role model. I mean, she died 100 years ago, but this is the land of Jane Addams and this is the land of compassion. So there should be no, no space for hate. It's just love. Because this is a country which has given opportunities to people from like so many cultures. And also I think it's just the diversity which actually stands out. You know, I think compassion should actually start from, from the United States of America, to be very honest. Because this is the most diverse country on this planet, isn't it? The most diverse country in the planet. We have people from everywhere. We have Palestinians here. We have like people from Palestine, people from Israel, people from Pakistan, India, China. Name one country. No, you know that the people are not uh, here in uh, in America. Everyone is here. So this this speaks volumes about the fabric of this country. Yeah, and I think about that sometimes as a New Yorker and as an American, and as someone I right now I live in Queens, and it's the most diverse borough in. Mm-hmm. New York City is probably the most diverse place, one of the most diverse places. I have lived on the in planet. Queens. Yeah, yeah, Queens is, is a wonderful yeah. place. Queens. I think that the United States is in a unique position in that we were both colonized and then became a colonizer, and that we contain <laughs> multitudes. We have both, we can go either way. But I, yeah. I do appreciate that, that assessment of the United States. It's the way I, I would like to think that the future can be. I wanted to ask if you could tell me about your your other your other books that you've written, the one about the Nobel laureates. Yes, yes. So my book, Battling Injustice, 16 Women Nobel Laureates, is, I think, a must read for every woman. And not because it's my book. No, I'm not saying, but it's a must read because it was edited by the Nobel laureates. I wrote it. Like for Malala's chapter, Malala herself edited it. And I've interviewed people like Onsun Suchi. I know she is pretty controversial right now. But think about 2011 when her aura was very different. So I've, I have hopped every continent on this planet to get these interviews. And there's not one or two interviews. I've conducted eight to ten interviews with every Nobel laureate. And it took me seven years to actually complete it. And the stories in my previous book will jolt the soul of so many women because that is the real depth because Nobel Peace Prize is the biggest prize in the world. And you will be shocked to know that Rico Barta Menchutum, you know, for example, a Nobel laureate from Guatemala used to work as a housemaid and was fed less than a dog. Her whole family was actually butchered in front of her because they were the farmers. And so she was the first a woman from the farmer's uh, background to get a Nobel Peace Prize. And these people have have really faced a lot. I mean, Leima Gaboy, the Nobel laureate from like Liberia, they, these, these stories, you know, what they have done, the way they were fighting the military dictatorship in their countries because they are from Africa. Leima Gaboy and the former president of Liberia, Alan Johnson, Sirleaf, and how they were fighting against their own president, Charles Taylor, who was actually known as the number one dictator in the African continent. And 
how they were brutally tortured by the child soldiers. It's way more intense than the present book. This is way more intense because that covers the entire world. And you'll be surprised in the history of Nobel Peace Prize of 116 years, only 17 women have got Nobel Peace Prize. Just 17. So you understand what I'm trying to say? 117 years of background of Nobel Peace Prize right from the time when Alfred Nobel started the will. And who influenced Alfred Nobel to start the Nobel Peace Prize? It was his own secretary, Bertha von Suckner, who got the first Nobel Peace Prize. So when I was going back to history, say 100 years ago, like, you know, going back in time from Abraham Lincoln, because I've shared letters from Abraham Lincoln or like Leo Tolstoy and all these in my previous book, you know, a pen of Abraham Lincoln was somewhere related and all. So it's just going back in time and seeing that at that time, there was no social media. They had nothing with them. And all they had was just their own grit and their own determination. And how these wonderful ladies never gave up. The International Court of Justice, Elizabeth, is the biggest court in the world. International Court of Justice is the biggest court in the world. And I think every country in the world is part of it, including United States of America. And it is based in Hague. Guess who laid the foundation of that court? It was the two Nobel Peace Prize winners, women Nobel laureates, you know, who got this prize 100 years ago. And they laid the foundation of the biggest international court of justice. Like, I know I'm going way to talk about this, but people don't know about these things and nobody talks. And all generally, like, you know, the people of, of our generation care about is, okay, so what this model is wearing today or, you know, what kind of brand she's using and, you know. But no one really talks about the sacrifice of sort of the most wonderful noble souls who have ever walked on this planet Earth. I'm interested in reading that, that book next too. I wanted to ask you, do you have any activism or upcoming projects or anything that's going on now that you wanted to talk talk about that you want to let people know about? Oh, well, right now, I don't know. There are too many things going on. I'm not very sure about, you know, what I'm going to come up next because writing another book will take enormous amount of time. But yeah, it's just I'll continue to do my peace work and try to make people happy. And especially I love talking to the younger generation so that because they are the future, you know, especially all the teenagers and, you know, and I just look forward to speaking and collaborating with them so that we all can speak as one. Sure. And where can people find information about you and your books online? Well, if they can Google me, they will find a lot of information. (laughs) I think so. I'm not sure. (laughs) Do you want people to follow you on Twitter or LinkedIn or any special website or anything like that? Yeah, sure. They can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook. LinkedIn. That yeah. is just your name, right? Yeah, yeah, which is my name. Yes, which is my name. I hope it shows up. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, so you can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, and you can follow our podcast at Fem Coffee Pod. Give us a tweet, tell us what you thought. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. 
Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.